One of the harder things we have to do is stop benchmarking and pursuing success like an employee and begin looking at things and taking action like a business owner. Today, I'll share two very specific things we can do, both of which I learned from my greatest mentor, which can help us in our endeavor to stop acting like an employee in our own company. Running a service business can be hard. It is not unusual for business owners in industries like contracting, home repair, auto repair, business-to-business services like janitorial, IT and accounting, and many others to feel overwhelmed by all the priorities facing them at any given time. Between addressing the needs of the customers, managing the employees, figuring out the financials, and getting processes in place, feeling like you're making significant progress on your business journey can be difficult. Welcome to Service Industry Success, hosted by Brian Harding. Each week, Brian will look at real-world strategies for building the business you are dreaming of, while also sharing tactics to get through some of the most frustrating parts of business ownership with a lot more ease. Let's get started. Beginning to think and act like a business owner sounds like it should be easy, like we can somehow just flip a switch. Most of us have to turn off years of programming and completely shift how we measure success. It's not easy at all. And there are a few things that are necessary to successfully do this. Today, I'm going to talk to you about two of them. First, though, let me tell you a little bit about the guy who taught me these two things. First of all, he's not a business owner. He took me under his wing when I was that terrible supervisor you've heard me talk about. I was 24, and I was the perfect combination of low skill and high confidence. We've all, we've all worked for somebody like that. Now, I wasn't low skill in my industry. I was in the steel industry. It's my first like real job out of high school. I was a, it was a union job, and I, you had to know somebody to get this job. And, and after, uh, after five years, I left the union, and I got into to low-level management. I was a supervisor. I knew how to do the things that, that got the orders filled. Uh, this company took big pieces of steel that weighed like, you know, 5, 10, 30,000 pounds and cut them into little pieces of steel. I knew how to do the things that were necessary to get the orders filled. I knew how to operate over half the machines that were used to cut these big pieces of steel into small pieces of steel. I knew how to load the trucks. I placed a high value on customer service as I understood it. I placed a high value on personal performance. I placed a high value on employee performance. I was honest. I was ethical. ethical. I had a reasonable level of intelligence. So I wasn't horrible because I didn't know how to perform the tasks necessary for the company to make money. I wasn't a horrible supervisor because I was lacking some kind of ethics or morals or something like that. I I had those things. I was horrible because I didn't have any skills or known strategies to get employees to work with me. In fact, you could say they actively worked against me. And and I would absolutely say that. (laughs) I would say some of that is well-deserved. So Mike first struck me, Mike is his name, Um, Mike first struck me because of how people treated him as a leader, and it was a lot different than how people treated me as a leader. My team didn't really like me all that much. Now, some of these guys, you know, I'd worked with as a peer, and then I left and I took a supervisory role. So there's, you know, there's, there's some conflict that comes with that when you, when you step into a new role and, and there's a little bit of that, but largely that was just, I didn't have a lot of skills as far as managing people and. Definitely did not have any strategies I could, I could consciously pull from to, to solve that problem. So my team didn't really like me much. His team adored him. Naturally, I wanted to know why. And looking back now, as I was putting together some notes for this, a, a number of things stood out or stand out. Um, first of all, Mike's still alive. So when I talk about, I'm not talking about like a, a guy who, who's died. Or he's still he's very much alive, very healthy, and he's doing great. 
Uh, I'm looking back though. So when I say he was, I'm looking back in time to when I was this 24 year old and, and he, he wasn't, he was, you know, I don't know, mid, late forties, whatever he was. He's about 20 years older than me, but I wanted to know why his team adored him and why my team didn't like me much. And one of the things is, and again, I'm going to give you a, a few things here, but one of the things is he was smooth and I, I moved and spoke in a very erratic fashion. I would jump from this thing to that thing. I would make a decision. If that decision doesn't work out, we'll just make a different decision. No big deal. He was smooth. He was always in control, but not a jerk. He operated as if he knew what was going to happen well in advance, almost like he was just playing a part in a play and just following the script. He was deliberate and acted and spoke with intention. I was compulsive and reactive. He was always calm. My hair was always on fire. I was always in a hurry. Got to get somewhere. Got to get things done. <laughs> and he was always uh, just super calm. I don't ever recall him being driven by emotion. That doesn't mean he didn't, never got angry. But he wouldn't let his anger or frustration dictate how a conversation went. Now, part of this, all this stuff is maturity. You know, like I said, he's considerably older than me. I'm, I'm saying that in case he's listening. Um, he's, you know, I don't know, 20 years older than me or whatever he is. Um, definitely old enough to be my dad. In fact, I still call him my dad. And I mean that every time I say that, I, I very much look at him as, as my father in many ways. Um, in many ways, he's the, the very much the paternal figure that showed me what it looks like to be a successful man, not just professionally. Anyhow, he's got these 20 years on me. So maturity was definitely a factor, but it wasn't just that. He had a strategy and a plan for anything that came up. I never heard him say, I don't know what we should do here. He always seemed to know. Now, I'm sure there's time he had doubt. He's not immortal, but he just always seemed to know. He always had this confidence about him. He always had a plan. And again, he was just calm and in control. Um, but he didn't walk around telling people how much he knew and how they should do things. And we'll get to more on that in a minute. He had balance. He was kind and gentle and sweet, yet firm and unwavering and very matter-of-fact at times. He had grace and he had a presence. He could accomplish with one look what I couldn't accomplish in an hour's worth of complaining or managing my people. <laughs> and much of my book covers skills and strategies I learned from him. And I owe a great deal of my success to him. And Mike, if you're listening, thank you. And I love you. Not, not love you. Not lo I love you, man. Like I really appreciate and I, I really love you. So I, I, I'm sure you know that by now, but just in case you've forgotten. So what could a guy who's never owned a business teach us about not being an employee in our own business? Well, one of the things he did is he focused on outcomes, not the specific manner something got done. Now, I'm going to talk about this topic here, and that doesn't mean there aren't times where procedures are required, beneficial, needed. Like, uh, yes, there's tons of things where procedures make sense. And there's times where we just need to focus on outcomes. And he was great at focusing on outcomes, not the specific manner something got done. And again, he was smooth and calm and in control. And here's how he would say it. Here's how I do this thing. Here are the outcomes and results my way gets. Therefore, because I know these results are attainable, these results are the standard. As long as you can achieve these outcomes and get these results, I don't care how you do it. But my results are now the standard, and there's no reason to accept a lower standard. If the way you do it does not produce the results that meet the standard, here's the way I do it. And I'll be glad to show you again. <laughs> it was it was just this kind of calm, methodical, almost me melodic, or mel um, like a melody. I'm sorry, I don't know what the word is for that. But um, had just kind of this uh, 
melodic tone, just kind of, here's how I do it. Here's the results I get. Again, not hair on fire, very calm, but matter of fact, here's the outcome that I get, I get doing it my way. You're free to do it your way. If your way doesn't get the results we need, here's my way. And he was just a master at that. Uh, could he have demanded people do things his way? Of course he could have. But, but why? Why would we want to do that? Now, again, I know there's times, and I know there's things where we need a procedure, and I, and I get that. I'm not saying we don't proceduralize things. There's things that are so critical, we need to proceduralize them because one mistake is catastrophic. There's things that we just do over and over incorrectly, and a procedure makes sense because we've proven over time that we need a procedure. I get that. I'm not talking about those specific kinds of things. So why would we do that, though? as far as demanding people do the way the thing the way we want it done the way we do it well part of it is how we are taught this is how you train someone you show them step by step how to solder pipe or how to install a window or how to repair a bent car fender or how to replace a starter in an engine like you you know how to do this thing they don't you show them the way you know works they show you they can do it in the right amount of time with the acceptable number of defects and boom now they're trained and this works great for many tasks. You teach them how to do a task. Once you know they got it and they can do it, you can now delegate that task to them. This does not work, however, for decision-making. There are not enough hours in the day and there's not enough days in a lifetime to teach a step-by-step -step process for making decisions across a wide range of problems and topics. There are always different variables, situational deviations, mood and behavioral differences of those involved. How you manage an employee today is not necessarily the same way you will manage that same employee next Thursday if they're in a different mood or struggling with a different problem. We can't teach some of these things step by step. Some of these things we have to rely upon judgment. And this is where the difference is. We can absolutely write procedures for doing tasks. It is not possible to write procedures for making judgment calls and making decisions. Part of the other, the other part of the reason we do this is because we prefer to have things done our way. And this is not a business owner thing. This is a human being thing. My favorite topic is me. Your favorite topic is you. All of us know any person's favorite topic is them. Therefore, all of our favorite way for something to get done is our way. Now, some of this is legit. I have a way I know works. It's less risky to do it a different way that I don't know works. So let's just do it my way. I, that makes sense. Unfortunately, when it, as it relates to business ownership, this is not sustainable. To demand something be done a certain way means somebody, usually me, will have to verify it was indeed done my way. Again, that is fine for tasks. We will have no shortage of procedures that we'll need to follow or, or, or need to be followed because we've learned not following a particular procedure produces less than desirable results. But in general, I don't want to be the chief verifier on every single thing we do. If somebody has to verify that, that things are done my way, and that person's usually me, that means that becomes my primary job, is verifying that things are done my way. I don't want to be the chief verifier. I want freedom. I want to be able to trust people to do well without me babysitting. I want my team to want to do a good job, as we've defined it, not be forced to do every single thing the way I want. That is a critical distinction in my goals as a business owner versus my goal as a trainer in a revenue producing job. So if I'm teaching somebody to make fries, I want it done the way we make fries. 
If I want freedom in my business, I want people to want to do a good job as we've defined it. Very big distinction for me. I don't want people to be forced to do everything I want or pretend like they're doing it the way I want when I'm around and then go back to quote unquote normal when I'm not around. If they do not want to do a good job as we've defined it, that is a, a, a common situation where when I'm around, things are great. I step out the door, things are not so great. And that kind of company cannot allow the business owner to be free. I would rather, I would prefer to have great results rather than great compliance because I can monitor results from St. Thomas. I can monitor results from Paris. I can monitor results from anywhere. I can see how much revenue we did. I can see how much how many warranty calls we had. I can see how many appointments we booked out of the total calls we got. I can see how many customer complaints or reviews we got. I can do those things from anywhere. I can only verify a thing was done my way if I'm there or, in some cases, someone I'm paying is there, which, again, is fine for tasks, fine for critical processes, all employees and service companies will have to make decisions. They will have to make judgment calls on a variety of things. So compliance as a singular goal, in my mind, is not always fine for service company employees, especially leaders and managers. It's not an assembly line factory job. It's just not. They have to make judgment calls. They're going to face situations that they've not experienced before. They're going to face situations with that this kind of car is different, this kind of house is different, this kind of whatever is different. They're going to have to make judgment calls. We have to aim for outcomes we want, not do it my way every time. It's just not sustainable. I can teach and delegate tasks step by step. Again, we're going to have tons of procedures and processes. In order to delegate decisions, though, I must focus on outcomes. To have freedom, I need a team who are competent thinkers. And I have to stop thinking in hours and dollars per hour, and doing things my way step by step. I got to stop thinking in things like, this is how we've always done it, or this is how I was shown. We got to start thinking in measurable objectives, decision-making criteria, efficiency, progress, sustainability, profit. These are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about as business owners, not the how-to so much. When we focus on how somebody is supposed to make decisions, we lose credibility. We spend our time telling them there's only one particular way to go about getting this thing done, whatever it is. However, they have a lifetime of experience of going about that very thing in a completely different way that has worked for them. So the entire time I'm telling them there's only one way to do this thing, they're thinking, this guy's full of crap. I have a whole life of experience doing it a completely different way. Even if they're wrong, they won't think they're wrong. Even if they're wrong, they're going to be sitting there going, what is this guy talking about? I've done this tons of times without doing it his way. Why have that conversation? Why get into that, that unproductive conversation about, well, your way is wrong and my way is right. Like, Achieve this outcome. Do whatever you want. <laughs> you hit this outcome, I don't care. You don't hit this outcome, here's my way. Super simple. Um, that's not to say we won't teach skills and strategies. Of course, we're going to do that. Of course, we're going to especially coach up our leaders and managers, but we have to allow them to make decisions. We cannot uh, Monday morning quarterback decisions like we can tasks. We Can we say, here's some basic skills I want you to learn. I want you to learn these basic things and here, go apply those and, and learn those when you get really good at those. And we're going to do a little more intermediate things. And then once you get those, we'll do more advanced things. Of course, of course, we'll do that kind of stuff. 
But the idea that we're going to be able to teach somebody step-by-step how to do, decide to do things and make decisions just like we would is not reality, I don't think. We can only point to outcomes that were not achieved and identify the lessons we learned, which will be applied in the future. So that's the first thing. Focus on outcomes. Focus on objectives rather than here's the way you have to do it because this is my way. One of the most critical things I learned from him and uh, the, the the finesse and the, the beauty in which he did this was is amazing. And his team performed. That's the key thing here. His team performed and they did it whichever way. If they had a better way, awesome. We learned a better way. Who cares? If they didn't have a better way, they did it his way. Awesome. Both were fantastic. And you know what he wasn't doing? He wasn't babysitting how they were doing it. He was sitting back going, we got the outcome we want. Or we didn't, and here's the modification we're making. All right, so that's the first thing. The second thing, and maybe um, a, a, a lesser known skill, a lesser talked about. I don't really hear anybody else talk about this kind of stuff. The other one, like not telling people how to do things. I, I hear people talk about that. This one, not so much. This one is, he, he didn't let assumptions that we're on the same page with no actual indications that we are, in fact, on the same page, dictate our path or lack thereof, or determine the level of accuracy we'd use to measure success. Once I began to learn this, which I did at least at a rudimentary level very early in my career, maybe within a year of, of working with him, uh, it began to stand out when other managers and other companies, uh, company leaders did not do this. It also became predictable the results would often be disappointed or disappointing when they would not do this. And as I began to refine the skill, fast forward a couple of years, it become it absolutely became um, to feel excruciating to watch managers go down a very predictable, stressful, frustrating path over and over and over again. This is one of those things that for whatever reason, it's not natural to learn to, to stop doing this until you, until I saw it, until I saw Mike do it, I didn't, I didn't figure this out on my own. Um, the hardest part was watching people suffer the consequences of making this mistake, get their butts handed to them by a customer, or, or have to deal with a bunch of really ugly tension with some, you know, the team of employees. And then literally like an hour later, the next day, almost certainly the same week, sometimes even within the same conversation, which they're fixing a catastrophic blunder where they got their butt kicked by the customer, turn around, do the same thing again. How does this look and sound in a real-life situation? It's an implied commitment that sounds like it meets the needs of the situation, but it doesn't have the specificity to ensure we're on the same page and or provide the opportunity to hold each other accountable. So here's an example. I, and I'm making this one up. I, I have other examples that are more real, but um, I have an example. I, I call... And this one's not like way far off base. This is loosely based on things that have happened. But I call a supplier and I say, I'm in a real jam. We screwed up big time with a key customer. And I need a miracle to bail me out. I need a, you know, a whatever, a left-handed flux capacitor. And I need it immediately. My customer's business is dead in the water until I get this part. So I need to get them back up and running right away because we kind of we kind of screwed up here. We're on, you know, we're on the hook for this thing. Their, their business is down. I need to get this taken care of like immediately. The supplier says, don't worry, I'm on it. We're going to get this thing out to you right away. I thank them profusely, hang up the phone with a sense of relief that I dodged a bullet here. 
I call my person in charge of the job and tell them, don't worry, the cavalry's coming. The parts we need to get this to get us out of this jam, we're going to be there tomorrow. Because in my mind, because I'm in the emergency service business, right away means the next truck out, which is tomorrow. Obviously, that's what the guy meant. Of course, my supplier knows this and wouldn't say right away if he didn't mean right away. My person tells my person on site tells the customer after apologizing yet again, the parts going to be in tomorrow. Customer's still angry, but at least we have a resolution timeline now. Tomorrow comes, the parts don't show up. The customer lights up my, my employee again. The employee calls me. I call the supplier and say, well, what's going on? The supplier says, at least Porter parts are in order from Tennessee. I put a rush on them and confirmed the expedited order, but they're at least three, four days out. Three, four days out. He says, don't worry, I'm getting this to you right away. <laughs> His idea of right away and my idea of right away were not the same. But in the moment, he had that urgency in his voice. And I could feel that he had an intention of doing the right thing. And I desperately wanted this to work out. And so in that moment, I took that, I'm on this, we'll have this out right away as assuming it's the same as my right away. And I skipped confirming the details. Other versions that sound like employees saying things like, I'll get this done very soon or really quickly. Don't worry. I'll make sure it's handled. I'll make sure it's, it's, uh, I'll make sure so-and-so gets on board. I once had an employee say, I'll make sure the pricing is dialed in when bringing a new co- a commercial customer on. So I, you know, bringing a commercial customer on took months. And I tell this employee, this is their first, first job with us. You know, let's, I want to make sure it goes, goes well. The employee says, I'll make sure the pricing is dialed in. I wanted to make sure the pricing was absolutely correct per our price sheet. The employee meant that he would take it upon himself to offer a discount to really wow this new customer. End result, the customer got a price that um, the press customer got a price they expected that from that point forward would be the price because one of the selling points I stressed when courting this new customer was consistent pricing. The reason he cared about consistent pricing because he was tired of having inconsistent pricing from his current and previous suppliers. So the, the employee says to me, I'll make sure the pricing is dialed in. I heard him say, I'll make sure it's absolutely correct per our price sheet. What he said was, I'm going to make sure these guys get a great deal so they have a great, quote unquote, first experience with us. And now that customer has the expectation of that lower price because the consistent pricing was a selling point I used to get the customer on board. And the only person I could blame was me. The employee thought they were doing the right thing. And I didn't take the two seconds to confirm we're both aiming for the same goal. I was once visiting a company for a couple of days and overheard a supervisor and manager discussing a customer complaint. The customer was pissed because they, there had been a mistake on the technical work this company had provided, which caused the customer to have to take another day off of work. I heard the supervisor say to the branch manager, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And went out to the customer and proceeded to explain to the customer that this kind of mishap rarely happens, but it's all just part of the learning process for our employee who made the mistake. <clears throat> completely missing the fact the customer didn't care at all about that and was pissed that she had to miss another day of work. The supervisor was not tuned into the customer's real concern as the manager had assumed. So when the, the supervisor went out and said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. The manager didn't confirm. What do you mean by take care of it? Supervisor went out and made it worse. So what did Mike teach me to do in these situations? Very simple, very cool, very calm, not threatening, not insulting, confidently, reassuringly even. When the employee says, I'll get on that right away, my response is, I don't know what that means. 
Now, I'm not being a jerk. I'm not saying you don't know what you're talking about. I'm taking all the blame on myself. When you say I'll get on that right away, I don't know what that means. What's right away to you? Is right away to you in six minutes? Is it in a couple of weeks? What's right away? And these are the kinds of things that I've learned over time save tremendous amount of heartache. When that employee said, I'll make sure the pricing is dialed in. If I would have said, I don't know what, what that means. I don't know what you mean by that. He would have told me. And you know what wouldn't have happened? We wouldn't have given that customer the incorrect pricing right out of the gate after I'd promised for months that we didn't do that kind of thing. Uh, same thing with the supplier example. Don't worry. I'll get, to, I'll get this out to you right away. I don't know what that means. Oh, you know, right away. Three, four days. <laughs> How much easier would life have been than calling the customer and saying, we're going to have this tomorrow, and then we don't have it tomorrow. These are the uh, uh, kinds of comments that are made quickly. We have to be on our game to like stop the conversation because, again, we want this to work. We want the solution they're, pro they're proposing to work. It's counterintuitive for us to stop and go hold it. What do you mean by that? And, again, I don't want to say stop you had this wrong. I, you know, what do you mean by that with my, my hands folded and, and whatever? I don't, what are you talking about when you say that? I take all the blame on myself, just like Mike did. I don't know what that means. And it, and it forces some clarification there that is not threatening. It's not, it's not being a jerk. It's not being uh, insulting. It's very confident. It's reassuring, even very calm, cool, and collected. I don't know what that means. Educate me, help me understand. And they will. 100% of the time, they will. All right. Uh, more on that in a minute. First, if you'd like to know more about the skills Mike taught me, because you're not confident you know the best strategies and tactics to get the results you want from your team, pick up a copy of my book, Service Industry Success. This book takes a deep dive into the leadership ideas, strategies, and tactics that have worked for me for many years. It's primarily for business owners who are afraid to hold their employees accountable out of fear that they will leave and who want to develop strategies and tactics to hold their team accountable without feeling like a jerk. It's for business owners who want to teach their leadership team how to be effective managers and leaders, but don't have a step-by-step -step process available to do so. It's for managers and leaders who want to develop the, the knowledge and skills to get their employees to do the right thing because they want to, rather than being motivated by threats or pleading. To get your copy from Amazon, just go to sisthebook.com. That's SIS, as in service industry success, thebook.com, sisthebook.com to get your copy today. All right. So here's the thing. Um, the title of this episode is uh, Be Like Mike, and I mean that 100% of the way. Here's my way. My way establishes a standard. There's no reason to accept a lower standard. If your way does not produce the results my way does, then here's my way. The other thing is, somebody says, I'm going to get right on that. I don't know what that means. I'll make sure we do a great job. I don't know what that means. I need to clarify. If I don't have clarity in what, we're, what the goal is, it's possible, maybe even likely, we're aiming for different ideas of success. We're aiming for two different goals. And if I don't have clarity in what we're both aiming for, we don't have any kind of verbal confirmation we're both aiming for the same thing, I certainly do not have the ability to hold anybody accountable for not hitting the mark. Uh, all right. Don't forget to get your copy of uh, Service Industry Success, the book, sisthebook.com, to get your copy today. Uh, if you haven't yet, please subscribe. Hit that button. It takes like two seconds to find that button. Hit that. Share this podcast with a friend or colleague who's a business owner in the service industry. And if you haven't yet, please give us a rating and review. You can spare a couple minutes for that. It'd be awesome, especially if you're on Spotify. And uh, that's it for this week. And I'll see you all next week.